Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 346th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jim Ludwig. Jim is the founder of Main Street Financial Planning, an hourly fee-only financial planning firm, and also created Procrastination Junction, a coaching program for fee-only advisors looking to improve their sales skills. What's unique about Jim, though, is how he's leveraged nearly three decades of experience of converting procrastinating prospects into recurring fee-only financial planning clients with an approach that's less about selling the value of financial planning and more about simply helping clients with moving from where they are to where they need to be and and know they should be and, and want to be, but sometimes still need a little help to overcome their own procrastination and actually move themselves there. In this episode, we talk about how, as a career changer serving in the Air Force and then a hospital administrator, Jim first found success in the financial services industry as an insurance salesman by leveraging the local network he built over his professional career, coupled with formal sales training that taught him how to frame conversations in a way that helped clients state their own need for insurance rather than pitching them directly. How when Jim opened his fee-only firm after relocating to a new area where he did not have a natural network, he leveraged the Garrett Planning Network and NAPFA to rebuild his referral pipeline, this time getting a lot of business from other advisors. And how, although it meant losing more prospects along the way, Jim modified his sales and funnel process over the years to increase the likelihood that he would only be sitting down with engaged, ready-to-act prospects in the first place, which in turn boosted his conversion rate and efficiency and profitability. We also talk about why, despite sales being a bit of a taboo within the advice industry, Jim views embracing sales as an essential part of building a high-quality, fee-only financial advice business. How Jim built his financial planning business to prioritize work-life balance and transitioned his company to remote meetings long before it was the norm, and even turned it into a value add for clients who wanted to visit him in Italy for part of the year. And how hiring not just an assistant, but someone with a strategy mindset who is determined to grow in and with the company proved pivotal to the growth of Main Street Financial and led to a successful, naturally integrated succession plan when Jim's assistant turned partner eventually bought him out nearly eight years later. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jim shares how surprising it was that despite his experience in sales and entrepreneurship, it still took three years to build a successful advisory business starting from scratch. How shifting the business from hourly to recurring revenue clients who were expected to come back annually for a checkup proved crucial for Jim's ability to hire employees and begin to scale. And how Jim's drive to serve and help others was not only the genesis of his successful advisory business, but led him at the tender age of 75 years old to launch yet another new business, his education program to help fellow fee-only advisors embrace sales, overcome imposter syndrome, and improve their overall communication skills based on his own years of industry experience and success. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jim Ludwig. Welcome, Jim Ludwig, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm 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 excited to to chat today. Uh you know, you you and I go back Many many years. I was I was trying to think. Like I, I think we I think we met almost twenty years ago, uh, 
uh, and and you you were, and I guess still to this day were one of, one of the most successful advisors that I had known in in the hourly model, having started like very early when kind of the the hourly model and Cheryl Garrett's Garrett Planning Network was just getting going. And and I know, I know I've I've always been fascinated by the hourly model because it's it's one of those models to me that like if you could just have a line of clients waiting to work with you and all you had to do was meet with them, give them valuable advice and charge them a reasonable hourly rate, you can make a heck of a business. Like you can you can scale a big business, you can hire staff, like the the math works very well. The challenge I find for almost anybody that goes in the hourly model, though, is that only works if you've got a high volume of clients, and most of them struggle at the "how do I get a high volume of clients?" Uh, apart, like I'm ready to give the advice and get paid. I'm knowledgeable and have good advice, but I don't know where to find a zillion people to give the advice to in order to get paid, and then I have to convince them like one at a time to hire me and engage me. And and I know you were particularly effective at figuring out how to solve this problem, both in where do you source some of the clients just to get enough of a flow to to have an opportunity? And then even more importantly, like, how do you get them on board and get them to say yes? Because a, lo- a lot of advisors will go through, you know, th- two to three meetings and might even produce the better part of a financial plan just for a prospect to convince them to work with you, which is fine if they're then going to roll over a sizable account. But when you're paid by the hour, like you have to get to yes very quickly and very efficiently because you got to start the clock for getting paid for your time. And so I know you lived this world of how do you serve a higher volume of clients? How do you get a higher volume of clients? And how do you get them to yes quickly and efficiently so that you can work with them in this model? And so just I'm I'm excited to hear more of what that journey was for you in practice and and maybe even just some lessons and takeaways for us all about like how you how you get to yes a little more efficiently because I find particularly in the RA world these days like you don't like to talk about sales sales is a bad word even though like even if you're charging fees and you provide valuable advice you do have to convince people to work with you like there is still a sales process that you seem to have figured out better than most. Well, you know, when you talk about an iceberg and it looks easy, it wasn't easy. And it took me more than three years to figure it out. In fact, uh, the giving financial advice was my fourth business that I started. And the first three all took me three years before I knew I was a success at it. Uh, It wasn't easy. And so I'd love to share that with you. Um, do you want to start at the beginning when I found Cheryl Garrett? Or do you want me to go back even previous to that to figure out why I would contact somebody like Cheryl Garrett in 2002? That's when I, when I met her. I, I, I think to start, just take us back to the beginning of when you entered financial advisor, financial services world in the first place. So I don't know if like, you were a career changer in meeting Cheryl Garrett was your entry to the industry or if you were you were doing other other things in financial services and then decided to to hang your shingle as an hourly planner well it's it's going to be the other services first angle and and that's what'll lead me to what I'm doing today uh, I had served a full career in the Air Force uh, first as an enlisted guy who was a disc jockey and public affairs person 
And then as an officer, uh, as a hospital administrator, I ended up uh, retiring to Santa Barbara and I got a job as the number two guy at a small hospital. They merged with the bigger hospital. I didn't survive that. And my brother had been in commercial real estate sales in Santa Barbara, but he didn't want me to work with him. And so I found someone who would train me in commercial real estate. So that's where I started. And uh, I had my ups and downs there. But uh, one of the keys to success, which will ultimately lead to why I'm doing what I'm doing today, uh, my mentor told me to uh, just start calling building owners, ask them what their problems are, and see if you can solve some of their problems. And I did, and some of them hired me to sell their building, lease their building, and I was pretty successful, made some good money. And then uh, I had a uh, uh, end run happen when I decided to buy a building, which was a big financial mistake. And uh, so it was, it was it was fine to sell and lease other people's buildings. Less fun when it was your own. Yes, and and I took a, a very dramatic course in real estate limited partnerships where I found out that the general partner has 50% of the upside and 100% of the downside. And I was downside. So after after that adventure, uh, my New York- So you liked, I'm going to assume you liked it more for the 50% of the upside part. Just unfortunately, you got the other version. <laughs> yes. So uh, in giving advice in future years, I- uh, told this story many times to prospects or clients. It always looks good when you see the upside, like crypto, but there are some downsides too. You've got to think about that, but we kind of glossed that over. So my New York Life agent, who went to the same church, uh, said, why don't you come to work for New York Life? You can make a lot of money there. And by this time, I'm president of the Chamber of Commerce, president of the Rotary Club. I'm on the airport board. So I'm a visible person in Santa Barbara. And I just invited business people to lunch and about half of them did business with me and, and the people I was in the professional tr sales training program couldn't believe what I was doing. And, uh, it was, what, a, what did they not believe like that you were already being successful before you went through their sales training? Well, during their sales training, I just kept, I became the, uh, new agent of the year for California for 1994. And how they were all saying, well, how do you do it? Well, the managing partner said, you got to make 10 appointments a week. And guess what I did? I made 20. And so it was a numbers game. Only one out of 70 new people are going to be around for a while. Okay. I, I want to be one. How do you do it? 10 appointments a week. I did 20. And, uh, and where were they and they were where were they coming from? Because you you well, already uh, had kind of built this network for yourself from the the commercial real estate days. Commercial real estate days for owners. I was president of a chamber of commerce with fifteen hundred members, so I had a calling list. I belonged to the yacht club, which had a beautiful building and a great place to have lunch. So I invite business owners to have lunch with me, and I never use the word insurance. They had to use it first. And on Fridays, I sat on a boat in the harbor. 
that had a landline phone and I dialed for dollars to make appointments for the next week. And I was just motivated to get appointments because I knew it was a numbers game and I knew I wanted to help people. So those so, combinations work for me. So out of curiosity, just what, with this whole, like, I, I never used the word insurance while you are operating as a, as a New York life agent. It's like, what was the pretense for the meeting? Like, how just what was the pitch when I mean when you're reaching out to them and trying to get meetings to do this twenty meetings a week? Like, what were you doing? What were you saying? How are you getting them to, uh, you know, to take a meeting without even telling them it's about insurance and that you're an insurance agent? Well, I would I would be more general, uh, but I had met them someplace else. You know, you collect business cards all the time. You say. You know, I met you last week at the uh, mixer, and uh, I thought it might be interesting to have lunch with you. Your car repair business sounds like it's really going places. I'd like to hear more about it. Do you want to have lunch at the yacht club, and then stop and wait for them to say yes or no? You know, so I okay. I knew something about them, and I just said, "You want to have lunch?" They know. I'm either president-elect or president or past president of the chamber, you know, depending upon what year it is. So they kind of know me a little bit. They've heard me talk before and make presentations and stuff. So I'm not an unknown entity. Let's say, so you're kind of known in the community, presumably if they want to do anything further in the community as well from their end, like, I don't know. I don't quite know where Jim is going with this, but Jim seems like a good person for me to know as well. Because he's already connected in this community, so I'll, I'll do this launch. And he's interested in my business. And people and like business to talk owners. To- business owners love to talk about their businesses. Yep. Yes. So that worked out well for me. And uh, my wife did object to me spending a lot of time doing this because it was more than forty hours a week. Although I did get to go to mixers and happy hours and stuff like that. Um, but because I got some recognition after that first year, I was, my wife and I were flown to New York city. They put us up at the Waldorf Astoria overlooking fifth Avenue. And my wife says to me, you know, this insurance business isn't that bad. Now in my office, Michael is a picture of Winston Churchill. Many people probably know this story, so I'll truncate it. But he gets invited back after his second stint as prime minister to his primary school, the elementary school in England. And most people don't know it, but he had to go through second grade three times. So he walks and they asked him to be a speaker. So he walks in, gets behind the podium, takes off his hat, takes a cigar out of his mouth, looks over the audience and says, never give up. Never, never, never get up give up puts the cigar in his mouth bowler on his hat walks out (laughs) that's the whole speech that's it but that has been my mantra just keep working at it yes you have to switch sometimes because things don't work but keep plowing ahead and it'll work out you know woody allen whether you like him or not 80 percent of success is just what showing up exactly keep at it you join a rotary club i'm in my fifth rotary club i'm approaching 40 years all sorts of people join rotary clubs or other uh, community service organizations 
and they rotate through the stockbrokers, the insurance agents. They come and they go because they're looking for prospects. But all the members know that. All right, here's another so-and-so guy from this organization. He's just looking for prospects. But if you stay around four or five years, it changes. They find you're a good person, that you're working on these projects, that what you say you'll do, you do. And then all of a sudden, the business comes your way. You know, so um, it's not easy, but staying with it is one of the keys to success. And so that's what I've done. So I, I, I am curious of what comes next. But before we get there, I just I do want to hear a little bit more about this prospecting process and like 20, 20 meetings a week. Yes. Where I'm not talking about insurance. I'm letting them bring it up. Like just how did the conversation ultimately get to business, right? Like, you know, the, the guy who owns the car repair business says yes to the lunch at the, at the yacht club. And so you get to the yacht club and it's lunchtime. Like, how do you ultimately get to business out of this? Like, where did you take the conversation or how did you introduce the concept when the time eventually came for, I, I am hoping to get some business out of this at some point? Well, it usually got around fairly quickly to family because that's what motivates most people that have a family. It's their family. And uh, so... Are, you know, what's your exit strategy? Are you going to sell the business? Is your son or daughter going to get in the business? So, you know, what are you doing? And then I'm saying, uh, have you seen anybody else sell their business and have do it? So I'm asking them to kind of ponder other experiences that they've seen or been in mm -hmm. in the past and say, well, how well are you set up for that? So I'm slowly moving into that area but it usually was a family-oriented platform and say, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you build up a business that you might be able to sell for two or $300,000, but, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? What kind of things can go wrong? And so I'm asking them to answer the question to get into insurance rather than me get into insurance. Tell me what could go wrong. What have you seen with other people have gone wrong? Because they've seen it. They just don't want to acknowledge it. And so I want them to acknowledge it. I said, well, that's interesting. It's, it's a powerful framing to keep coming, keep bringing it back to you know, what's your exit strategy? Well, what have you uh, seen other people do? You know, what are, are you worried that anything could go wrong with the plan? What have you seen with other people where it went wrong? Because I just, it's a good point, right? Uh, you know, we tend not to dwell on the on the negative of the risks, right? Per earlier, you know, you, you hear fifty percent of the upside and one hundred percent of the downside, and you stop listening after fifty percent of the upside because the, like the brains, <laughs> the brains, the brains already there. But uh, but a lot of people are familiar. You know, uh, a lot of people are familiar to bad things that happen to other people. Of course, it's not going to happen to me. Bad things happen to other people. So. If you ask someone like what could go wrong for you, they're like, man, yeah, I don't. I think it's going to be fine because we don't really want to go there. But what have you seen with other people where it went wrong? It's like, oh yeah, I know a few people. I know a few people where it didn't work out. And just now you can, now you can get them to start talking about what they've seen and where the and where the issues might be. So I just I, I really like that 
that framing of taking it not not just to like what if something goes wrong what are you worried about like where have you seen it with other people where it went wrong just that's a it's a really cool framing well and that's thank you new york life for training me that way because i all the way in the occupations i've had i've always been able to participate in formal sales training and how do you become successful and and I remember reading Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant, early on. And he basically said, uh, find a model where someone else has been successful and just follow their model. Boy, that sounds easy, doesn't it? <laughs> but <laughs> it's not that easy. And uh, I went to a Tony Robbins sales course. And I came back to brag to uh, some of the other brokers in my real estate office. And they said, huh, this one guy said, well, you know where Tony Robbins got all his ideas? I said, no. He said, read the book Influence by Robert Cialdini. You'll find out where mm -hmm. he got all his ideas. So that became really the Bible in my life as far as sales went. What is what Ch ways Cialdini's book? Yes. Influence, which has been revised. So if anybody is going to go out and read it, read the 2021 version, which is a little more updated, but it is the number one book I, I recommend to everybody. And one of the things, nobody wants to be salesy, but yeah. I was of the opinion you needed to have these sales skills. Anyway, uh, we're back in uh, New York Life Days. Things are going well. And then I get approached by the Bank of America. The Trust Department of Bank of America talks to me and said, why don't you come be our business development person for Ventura, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo counties. We have about 45 branches and you've done so well in life insurance. You can make more money and retire earlier. And I pencil it out and say, you're right. And I won't have to work so many hours. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so I uh, truncate my New York Life business. And I go to work at the uh, Trust Department at Bank of America. It sounds a little more prestigious, doesn't it, than the life insurance agent? Now I'm the senior vice president at Bank of America. And uh, so I'm going from branch to branch and talking to people and getting referrals because that's a way to get business and things are going along pretty well and I'm starting to make some really good money and you know what happens a merger nations bank of charlotte north carolina decides to buy bank of america out of san francisco and they decide that trust departments need to have the trust officers in charge rather than the business development officers. So I get packaged out. And a week later, a headhunter calls me and said, City National Bank in Beverly Hills wants you. And what do they want me to do? Well, they wanted me to do the same thing. I knew all the accountants, the uh, attorneys in my swath of uh, influence, and uh, they hired my Rolodex, but they moved it a little bit, Pasadena, 
to Santa Barbara rather than Westlake Village to Paso Robles, if anybody knows California. They're moving me down a little bit. And uh, so, but and they offer me a great base salary, huge money as a base salary. And then I get a fraction of the action of all the money I brought in. And I'm making close to half a million dollars. This is 1999. Okay. Wow. So that's yeah. a that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a lot of money today, but that's a lot of money 25 years ago. I know. Uh, and there were seven uh, business development people for City National Bank, and four out of seven of us made more money than the president of the bank. <laughs> guess guess what they did the next year? Changed the comp schedule. Of course. <laughs> it's too easy for you guys. Well, we had a growth strategy. And our biggest competitor was William Bernstein, which had a value strategy. So the late 90s, we were knocking Mm -hmm. them left and right. It was pretty easy for us. But they cut my base in half. So I had given some family money to uh, an outfit called Fisher Investments. And Fisher Investments knew what I did. And they had talked to me casually about representing them in Santa Barbara. And so after... The, the City National Bank decided that I wasn't worth as much. I called them up and said, hey, I'm ready to take that Santa Barbara job. And they laughed and said, that's, that's gone a long time ago. Sorry about that. I said, well, you got any other positions? They said, yeah. How about uh, would you go work in the Mid-Atlantic? And I went, oh, my best friend and his wife, they've been ill. We're back there all the time helping them out. I'll take it. So I go moved to uh, Maryland, and I start going to visit people, and the dot-com bubble is bursting. So you know what people say? I'm worried. I I can't give you the money now. And Ken Fisher had gone to cash. He had a great story. My family money, you know, was looked like it was being protected. And then he decided to get back in the market a little early. Hmm. So then people saw the wrong track record. Needless to say, my visions of making 300000 plus uh, went down to about 80000 And I said, eh, that's not really what I want to do. And so then it came to me, uh, by, the, by the way, I'm a CFP by this time. Because Bank of America wanted all the business development people to be CFPs because they wanted to put the uh, liability on individuals rather than the bank, which I didn't think was practical, but that's that's what they did. Interesting. And trust departments were fiduciaries. This is before the word fiduciary became mm, popular, right. but and before the CFP uh, credential said we have to announce that we're fiduciary. Right, like the first layer of CFP fiduciary didn't didn't come until the 2008-2009 right. change in the standards. But but this was the original Bank of America was thinking, you know, if we have them all CFPs, that'll give them a nice halo. Uh, that means they're really trained. But most people at this point, 25 years ago, didn't have a clue as to what a CFP was. The public had no idea. You know? Right. CFP board wasn't doing its public awareness campaign yet. That came later. Now, uh, with the second, uh, now I'm with Ken Fisher, 
it doesn't work out, I'm searching the internet because search is now, it's 2001-2002, the 9-11 happens, I was in a hotel ballroom with Ken Fisher giving a presentation when 9-11 happened, we all ran to the bar and watched television and uh, uh, had some adult beverages watching this disaster. Ken Fisher and two of his lieutenants borrowed somebody's rental car and drove across the United States to get back to Woodside near San Francisco. Yep, because pl- planes shut down. You and weren't going anywhere. And uh, I, I drove home, um, you know, like everybody else. I was really shocked at what was going on. But the prospects disappeared. Uh, everybody was frozen in their shoes. And so I had to find some other thing to do. Although I had a pension from the Air Force, so I never worried about my mortgage or car payment. That sort of was in my head. I can always cover that. And so uh, I never had too much pressure. I had to make the sale, which is a thing I talk about fairly often. So I got on the internet and I was saying, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back and sell life insurance? I know I can do that. Do I want to work for another bank? Ah, I'm tired of banks. Uh, Do I want to work for an investment company? I don't really want to do that. Oh, hourly, just give advice. I don't have to manage the money. And this sounds interesting. So I paid Cheryl Garrett some money. I went out for three days of training in Kansas City. And I came back and I opened my practice and nobody called. Why? Well, did you do any advertising, Jim? Yeah. I was in the town with Fort Meade, which is the home for the National Security Agency, 25,000 civilians. Don't call them spies. They're civilians. And 5,000 military. And being retired military and a former bank vice president and a CFP, these people should come rushing in my door. And I bought an ad, Michael, an ad that cost me $1,000 a month for six months in the Post newspaper that came out every week in in this 30,000 alleged readership. Half-page ad, $13,000. And you know what happened? I'm going to guess not a lot of phone calls. <laughs> None. Zero. Zero. Now, we had a communications consultant with uh, the Garrett Planning Network, Marie Swift. You may know her. And uh, she said, uh, don't do ads. It won't work. You need to work on referrals and other things and, and cultivate journalists and get uh quoted by journalists and stuff like that, but I didn't really listen. I had two yellow page ads, but I did get one call. This lady was calling the person above me and dialed the wrong number. <laughs> so I've spent all this money and it's not working. And I'm trying to, to get lunch with attorneys and accountants. And although I've been successful in Santa Barbara, I'm going nowhere meeting with attorneys and accountants. Nowhere. So what was different now, like just didn't have the presence and community that you had before? Well, I wasn't a vice president at a bank uh, where they did business 
I, I, was, I was just another broker in their mind trying to steal some money from their clients and they weren't having it at all. They weren't interested. I wasn't an interesting person to have a meeting with or lunch with or a conversation with. And, and so in, so in retrospect, like that was part of the, the driver for why the numbers game works so well the first time for you in New York life, like the, the, the community presence, the bank background, the, um, the rotary history, like all of those had made you up, I guess like a, a, a more valuable person for them to meet with in the community. And when you had to do it cold in a new community and you didn't have that background and presence, then all of a sudden, like the numbers game wasn't working the same way anymore. That's right. It didn't work at all. In fact, I didn't have a, when I was working for Fisher Investments, I was going all over in mid-Atlantic. I, I didn't have a base of anything. I wasn't at a rotary club. I didn't go to church. I, I had nothing as far as roots went. I had right. no natural groups. When I uh, joined New York Life, they, you had to make a diagram of all the different groups you belong to and then contact people in all of those groups. And ah, I had good old natural market list. I, I, I didn't have that there. So I was lucky in one respect. I was, I got authorized by the state of Maryland, like November the 1st and November the 4th was the NAPFA annual meeting in Baltimore. Wow. I think I'll go to that. I, I did go to that and I met a lot of people from the Baltimore area because obviously that they had an easy commute to the uh, yep. annual meeting. Uh, their membership person grabbed me and said, submit it, uh, submit your plan, get approved. And, and I did, and I was accepted for membership right at the beginning of 2003 and then I came across a lady named Nancy Bryant who has a practice in Baltimore who had offered to reinstate the NAPFA study group for the Baltimore area. They had one in DC, they had one in Northern Virginia, but Baltimore's had gone into cold storage and she said, I need somebody to help me. <laughs> I've got no clients, I'll help. Well, you got time. <laughs> and but I did get a referral from another my first client was a referral from another uh, Garrett member that didn't have time. And so uh he he was nice enough to send me a, a a client who I ended up doing other family members with. So the first client turned out to be okay. But uh I didn't have many clients at that time. So a couple of months later Nancy says to me, "I'm too busy." Can you take this over? Of course. <laughs> so I was able to talk all the time to all the NAPFA people in the area, promoting the monthly meetings. I met a, a wonderful CFP at T. Rowe Price named Stuart Ritter. Uh, we had, that's where we had the meetings at T. Rowe Price. Uh, I got to talk to all the speakers and they all got to know Jim Ludwig, including someone named Michael Kitsis. And I was the hourly person in the area. Who could they send somebody to that wasn't qualified, didn't meet their limits and stuff? 
And so yeah. I started getting referrals. And yeah, I got so, lots of referrals. I was say, I, I, I mean, I remember this time for when we had met and I was getting to know you in the mid 2000s. This was still, what was that prior advisory firm at the time? But, you know, we, we were in a big growth phase, but we were on the AUM model and, and had, I think, like at the time, probably was $250,000 minimums that we were raising to $500,000, which was a fairly sizable number in the, in the, in the mid 2000s. And so we were getting, you know, clients and referrals that didn't fit and we're trying to hold firm on the minimums. And so, uh, I've always been the mindset, like I, you know, I, I try to hold firm to minimums, but my like internal moral compass is like, I can't just like throw you back out to the wolves, like kick, kick you, kick you back out there when I'm saying no, like if I'm going to say no, I have to help you get somewhere else. And so, uh, like you were the local Garrett advisor, like you don't have minimums you charge by the hour. Like it was, a a sermon from my end. So it was, it was a, it was a very easy referral to make and a very easy way to solve that situation, even from our firm's end of, I need a good place to send these people, but I'm trying to hold firm on the minimums. Like Jim does this and he's great for people like you in your situation. Let me introduce you. Jim, got you another one. And I thank you. And a lot of Napful planners and a couple of uh, Garrett planners in the greater area uh, sent me referrals. But you know what, Michael? My close rate wasn't that good. Now, what, Jim, is your close rate that wasn't that good? Maybe 50%, maybe sometimes 60%. But I had I had a background of being a better closer, and I couldn't One, think- And by the time you're in the hourly model, like I think there's also sort of an implicit assumption that the close rates go, should be fairly high. I mean, just like you, they have a problem and you charge by the hour, like- by the time they've called, this should be a pretty good fit already. And it's by referral. So it's not a cold lead. It's a right. warmly because they can go to the NAPFA website or the Garrett website and find me by zip code. Okay. But those are cold. They aren't as good. Right. But my, my close rate just isn't good. And I'm getting referrals. What is it? Well, I had left my sales skills <laughs> in the driveway because my, my home office was on the ground floor. It, it was the garage and the rec room turned mm-hmm. into the office, but my sales skills had left and I was trying to analyze what am I doing wrong? Well, I'm assuming that everybody wants to hire me and they all go home to think about it and half of them won't answer the phone again. And so I had to do some internal recognition that I got to get back on track. Remember Cialdini? Mm-hmm. It's being likable, reciprocity, scarcity, authority, but they were important techniques and traits that I needed to implement. And so I changed how I interviewed people or they interviewed me. I, uh, I actually did a video on this that I got, I'm now a CE sponsor. <laughs> so I did a presentation to Garrett planners a few months ago and, and uh, 
in the process, I got CE credit for it, but I was giving them my five big tips and, you know, it was, it was reinstituting my sales skills, although I don't call it sales all the time. Uh, but internally, I want to tell advisors who are listening to this, we're all in sales. Now, you can adopt the magic word that Daniel Pink uses called moving. You're moving people from one situation to another situation. You're not selling them. And uh, here's the book here. I got it out. To Sell as Human, Daniel Pink, mm -hmm. 2012. So if you don't want to be salesy, be movie, okay? <laughs> Moving people from one situation to a better situation. That's maybe what you do. Okay, so now I'm with the Garrett Planning Network. I'm starting to get people in. And it takes me about four years to be really good at most people coming in the door are going to hire me. That's my attitude. and. I've developed frequently asked questions on the website, but I find out they don't read them. I send emails. I tell them on the phone. They don't read the frequently asked questions. So about the fourth interaction I have with these people on the, the uh, I'm going to meet with you in a few days, I put the five or six best frequently asked questions right in the email. I force them as much as I can to read the frequently asked questions about how we work, what's involved, what it's liable to cost. Everything's in those frequently asked questions. And you know what? I get a fair amount of cancellations. And at this point, what am I thinking? Whew, that's another tire kicker I don't have to deal with. So, so help me understand what you did. So you had FAQs on the website originally, right? which a lot of us put out there at some point. We're like, well, you know, how do I work with you? What does it cost? Particularly folks in the hourly model because you really want to define the scope. So, so you had an FAQs section on the website, but then instead of or in addition to having it there, if I'm understanding correctly, like when you were sending the like the meeting confirm email to the client, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I'm looking forward to our meeting next Tuesday, you know, making sure we're on. Like that email, you would then also include, and by the way, before we meet, like here's a couple of other things you should know about working with me. And then you drop the FAQs in in there in that email. Yeah, not all of them because I think at uh, some point we had about 20 FAQs. But five <laughs> or six I would put in the email because I had to get – people to read them. Uh, the other issue that everybody has to deal with, if, if it's a couple, is the other half needs to know what's going on too. Because many times early on, they would be surprised how much it cost, what it took. Uh, they weren't on board with what their significant other was driving the ship and they're like, what? Uh -huh. We're going to do what? I haven't thought about this. Uh, so I did my best to make sure and ask, please have the other person read this stuff too, because we don't want to surprise them because they might get upset with you. I mean, I, I would say something like that to give them an incentive to, right. to, to, to tell them ahead of time what's going to happen. 
But then so, I had. Uh, so I'm, I'm struck by this, though, just the, the, the mindset of if you put this in the email and they canceled on you, this wasn't like – because I, I find for a lot of advisors, if they put that in the email and then the, and then the, the meeting gets canceled, they're, they're saying something the effect of, oh, if I'd gotten a chance to be in front of them, like I think I could have explained this. I could have, I could have explained my value. Like I put the fee out there and I scared them off. I should have had to come to the meeting first so that I could talk through this and explain all the great things I'm going to do and why my advice is, is, is worth it. Uh, you know, like there's, I find for a lot of advisors, there's this gut impulse of if I can just get in front of them, I might have been able to save this. And so I'm struck by just your mentality and f- and framing of this of like, I'm happy I avoided spending 30 minutes with the tire kicker. Yes, because a lot of times that's what happened. Only one other two couple would show up. I have to go home and think about it and explain it to the other half. I mean, they really weren't engaged to begin with. They weren't maybe qualified. They weren't motivated. And I didn't want to spend a lot of time chasing people anymore because, get this, I wanted a work-life balance. I didn't didn't want to have more meetings and less clients. I, I wanted to have less meetings and more clients. And so I wanted motivated, knowledgeable about the process. People who are both had some level of understanding show up on my doorstep. When I'm I'm struck by how often you're emphasizing both engaged, both ready, share this with your significant other. So it sounds like in 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 your world, in your experience, the the spousal buy-in was a very big or very common blocking point. Right. And a lot of times I'd say, well, does your significant other have a driver's license and can they drive? Yeah. So if you're sick someday, they can drive, right? Well, what happens if you're sick or worse, are they going to be able to take over? So I, I would, I used a lot of medical analogies, you know, every, every day metaphors or analogies that I could come up with that they could identify with and say, oh yeah, well, they certainly know how to drive. Well, this is a big train, this financial life. (laughs) Maybe they, they, they need to be an engineer driving the train in case you can't. Interesting. Well, and, and I mean, it makes sense to me at the end of the day that, uh, right. I, I mean, different clients come to us for different reasons in different contexts. Sometimes the reality is like there is one spouse who's the financial driver and they do make the decisions, including the decision about whether to hire an advisor and who we're working with. And the other spouse kind of gets dragged along as it were or just just isn't engaged in the process and and you only work with one spouse but then there are certainly other scenarios where both spouses have to be on board but one not necessarily both of them are involved in the process up front you don't see both you just find out later you got vetoed by the other one that you didn't necessarily have much in much engagement with or i suppose just the scenario of the reality is one spouse wants to work with the financial advisor and the other one does not. And so, of course, the spouse that wants to work with the financial advisor is the one that reaches out because they want 
to, and they start the process with you and they start taking up your time, but they don't even have buy-in from their other spouse. And so at some point, you're going to get sunk because they didn't get buy-in from their spouse. And you've wasted another meeting. Or more than one meeting for most of us. <laughs> and and you did prep time and everything else. Mm-hmm. So you've got three or four hours invested and somebody vetoes it 20 miles away or the world away if you're, if you're just uh, remote. I feel like this still, this still is all built on the presumption that you have a healthy lead of uh, a healthy flow of leads in the first place, right? I mean, does it, it's easier to say, well, I avoided another tire kicker. I'll just take the next one. When you have reasonable confidence, the next one is coming. If, if we're kind of feeling scarce on leads, I feel like you get all the more hungry of like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make everything I can of every single one I can, because I'm not getting that many. So I, I, I feel like there's some implication here that you, you had confidence that there was going to be a steady lead flow that if this one was a tire kicker, it was better to just move them on and get to the next prospect than it was to fight it out and try to win them across the line. Yes. You remember Blanchard's book, Raving Fans? Yeah. Well, that's what helped in our business at Main Street. We had raving fans who sent us their family members, their neighbors, their work colleagues, because we really did a good job. We were passionate. We were empathetic. We cared about them. We took good notes. Uh, we asked about their family. And it goes back to family in many cases here. You know, how did, did, how was the graduation from high school? Whatever, you know, you had in your notes last time. Bring it full circle. Because they knew we really cared. And so when someone else in their sphere of influence had a problem, they referred them to us. We had to open an office in New York City because we had so many referrals to family members in New York. I couldn't believe it. I, I ended up doing two days a month in New York City seeing people, mostly by referral. And it came from people in the mid-Atlantic area referring us to their families in New York. So, so help me understand how the lead flow, I guess it evolved for you over time. So it sounded like early on going out to, you know, the, the good old ads weren't, weren't doing anything. And that some of the early flow was getting referrals from other NAPFA advisors or just advisors who had minimums or for some reason couldn't take folks that were still a fine fit for you on the hourly model. At some point, it sounds like that shifted to be more referrals from existing clients. So share with us just like, I guess, like how that broke down and, and like how it changed over time, how many years it took for that to shift. Like how did that evolve in practice? Well, it probably went from 70% other advisors in the early years to maybe, mm, well, Anna, who now runs the company, Anna came along in 2006. And that's the, the first time I had a full-time assistant. And so 
we were then working on getting more referrals by our clients by touching them more often. I had another person to help them. In fact, Anna soon became the face of helping the clients with all sorts of things because she had time and she was really good at it and she really is a caring person. And and so uh, it goes back to my uh, marketing from the 60s, the Reader's Digest, you got to touch them 13 times before they buy. That was the Reader's Digest thing. And so we kept in contact with the clients and we were encouraging them to come back in person once a year and have another follow-up meeting. And that ultimately uh, became the success of the business model is recurring income. We had them coming back. We talked about their family, what's going on with their parents. A lot of times they had parents. We got a significant, probably, I don't know, I can't, I can't estimate this, maybe 15 or 20% of our clients' parents became clients if they were in the area because uh, these people with uh, that were in their 30s or 40s with little kitties, they were worried about their parents too because they were envisioning being in the sandwich generation had to worry about kids and parents at the same time. So we got a fair amount of that, but it was always springing from the family situation. And we had time on these recurring meetings to develop that, to, to talk about that and say, gee, be happy to talk to your folks if they want to do anything. So that was, go ahead. So what was your model? Just like overall, I mean, were you straight hourly at X dollars an hour? Just ask ask us what you what you want, and we'll bill you no, accordingly. It, it, were it you morphed. more packaged? Was it like a retainer subscription thing? Like just what? How did it work for you? Well, early early on, I realized I can't keep getting new people over and over again. I got to see them once a year. I've got to provide value and touch them, and that's where Anna was a key component because I had someone who could help me implement that be- to get them to come back every year. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember the, the sign up was January, which was a great month economically, but November was scary because I was running out of money and can I make payroll? I, <laughs> you know, I, I had this, uh, system of contacting people in November because things were quieter in December of talking to people and say, you know, the Congress is meeting. These are the things they're thinking about. We need to take a look at what you're doing. Uh, You know, are you contemplating any job shifts next year? Uh, Just things like that. I'd have conversations with people, get them to sign up for the following year. And then after a couple of years, I built that into my model, the expectation that they would be ongoing clients. And we were working using our hourly tool to give them a project bid. So this is about 2006, started in 2003, really. So by 2006, I'm giving them a project bid and I'm telling them how much it's going to cost for uh, future annual programs with a declining fee schedule which I probably did for another five years until when Anna became a partner and looked at the books and said, we can't afford to give this big a discount. 
<laughs> to people every year. Um, but so, we were, so what, what was a typical, I guess, like hourly rate and project bid for you? Just how, how did this break down in practice? Well, um, I started off at 150 an hour and, and Cheryl Garrett kept saying, you're too cheap, raise your rates. And so I, so I'm probably by 2006 or seven with Anna's with me, I'm probably at 250 an hour. And I would say, oh, it's, it, I would go through, I had a spreadsheet uh, that I abandoned after a while because that most people didn't want to look at a spreadsheet and see how I added it up. I just say it's 10 to 10 to 12 hours worth of work over this time period of six months to a year. And that'll be uh, $3,000 and uh, we'll take a deposit of $1,000. And then when you're happy at the end, you can pay us the other 2000 So that's how it morphed into that. And the expectation was that they would pay us $1,800 a year for the first three years. And then it would go to 15. And then after five years, it would go to 12. And so we were down at $1,200 a year. And that wasn't enough. Based on our time, we weren't making enough money on that, as Anna pointed out. Because in theory, the longer they've been with you coming back, the simpler it should be, the fewer problems they should have because you've done good planning work up to that point. So the the idea was that the burden would decrease over time, but in practice, because either it, it didn't or it did, but not that much <laughs> it, it didn't decrease that much in their in the in the client's mind hey it's really easy you've known me for three years why am i spending so much for them to make that conclusion was easy for us when anna said well look how much we're doing this it's, it's we're not getting enough so we we phased that out over time and basically it was we want to deal and this is when the faqs yes we always will do an hourly engagement because to be a member of the Garrett Planning Network, you have to be able to offer that. But there's a lot of things out there in your financial life that we'll call landmines. And it's the old issue, you don't know what you don't know. And so we're going to work with you to prevent bad things happening to you because we're going to work on it ahead of time. And we'll modify it if if the landscape changes, if the Congress does things or the state does things, we'll help you modify your plan. So take me back for a moment. Like, What led you to hourly and doing this, this model? Just, I mean, you'd, you'd been successful in insurance. You'd been successful in uh, bank trust work. Like, what, why decide to hang your shingle as an hourly advisor after all of those career successes already work like just what why why the shift why something new and not continue some of the things you'd already done work life balance and in fact in my interviews it was the number one thing people wanted all the advisors i talked to they wanted some sort of work life balance and if i managed assets First of all, I had to take phone calls about why the market was doing this and why they're, they're, they didn't even get close to the S&P 500 index and blah, 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 blah. And I didn't want to get into that situation where I had to defend all the time the investment recommendations of managing it. Why did you do this? Because I'd seen 
Ken Fisher blow it and how that blew up. And I didn't want to do the same thing. And I could control my, uh, going back to Cialdini, I wanted to inject scarcity. When I didn't have enough appointments, I always booked only three weeks out, three weeks out. I always wanted to make sure I had time off for my family and that so 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 even if you didn't have a lot of clients coming in at the time and you had some capacity, if people wanted to meet with you, it was always well, Jim has some time three weeks from now, yes, and it gave us three or four interactions to read the FAQs. Okay. <laughs> because yep. that was key. I I only wanted to meet with qualified, motivated people, you know, who then would send me referrals also if I did a really good job. You know, water their eyes. I don't know where I got that expression, but I, I really wanted to do a good job and they would recognize that. And I was a nice, friendly, likable person. And so they would send more people to me. Was it your goal and expectation to create the kind of income in the hourly model that you'd had in in some of the prior? Because just when you were getting the three to five hundred thousand dollars a year in nineteen ninety nine dollars at at like a at New York Life and the Trust Company, I mean, you you need a lot of billable hours. To get there, you can do it if your hourly rate's high enough. But like you, you need a lot of billable hours. So was 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 the idea and vision to scale, like to try to scale it up that far, or was part of the work life balance? Like I've got a pension, you know, the mortgage and the car payments are covered. Like I I don't need it to add up to that much. And so this model where I I I just charge for my time and I do as much time as I want to charge for like was that part of the whole point in the first place that just I can control it because I'll just work and bill exactly however many hours I want and right. I don't have to make it add up to anything in particular. And my personal target profit became one hundred fifty thousand. Okay. Okay. And in two thousand six, I had a epiphany. I had hired a woman a British woman in Sardinia who had a boyfriend that was Italian. So that's why she was there. And I, I had her research. Could I get enough American expats who had kids at the international school in Milan and Rome to, to make a decent living by working two to four months a year in Italy? Now I was living. That would have been harder for the, State National Bank in Beverly Hills. <laughs> so I I had, uh, Carol and I had lived in Italy in the 70s. Our two kids were born while we were there. Um, as soon as we kicked the kids out in 1999, we left Santa Barbara because the kid, we were one block from the beach. The kids wouldn't leave. So we left town because I was working for City National and I had to move. Uh, closer to LA because I had to go to all the way to Pasadena sometimes. So it was just not practical to live in Santa Barbara. And so I, I came up with this wild idea that maybe I could visit Italy and have all these parents pass me around because they do at the soccer matches and stuff like that. And could I do it? And she introduced me to a technology called Skype. It was a British 
firm. And I had an epiphany. My goodness, I wonder if I could get my clients to work on Skype and I don't have to be in the office. So I started. We're talking, we're talking 2006. That's right. Yes. 2006. So in 2007, I went to Italy for a couple of weeks and had some meetings on Skype from clients who would could cope with that. And then every year I expanded and I expanded it. So by the time it's 2015, I'm working out of Italy two months. Now, Anna's already bought the company in 2014. So I'm not running the company. I'm just an advisor who's working to make sure the revenues come in so Anna can pay me. (laughs) I had a four-year payout. Um, But the clients weren't opposed to that. And I put in a little bonus. Uh, If you want to come stay with us in Italy for three or four days, we'll put you up and you can stay in Italy. And we'll show you around. And they did. (laughs) I had probably mm, every year, three or four clients or you know three or four couples would come and stay with us a few days That's north of cool. Rome I'd always take them to a CC St Francis of a CC because it's kind of hard to get to and I had a car um, so I started working remotely and when 2020 came along I had already moved to Las Vegas in 2016 so I was working remote from Las Vegas using Skype I would fly to New York, train to DC, come back to Las Vegas, drive to Santa Barbara, drive to San Francisco, where we had our other offices and see people there. But for the most part, I was 80% remote when the pandemic hit. So to move the other 20%, they already were primed to do that. And we didn't have any fall off in our acquisition of clients or our, our recurring income, which by this time is more important the new clients, it's that recurring income because that's the value of the company is recurring income. That's how I sold the company was demonstrated to Anna and ensuring, assuring her that I would stay around long enough to hurt to have enough money to pay me for it. When I'm struck by that, just relative to the hourly model, I feel like how a lot of people frame the hourly model, which is this just like relatively transactional when you have problems, come in and you can pay us for our advice and we'll bill you accordingly. And like that, that's the deal. That's the value exchange that for, for you, I mean, I guess, you know, words and language around this evolve over time, but like, it sounds like you, you evolved into something that looked more like a call, like an, an annual retainer, like an annual engagement structure so that they were really more functionally like ongoing recurring revenue clients, not transactional hourly clients. Uh, You just set the fees by saying it takes us this many hours and we charge this much in hours. That's how we figure out what your fee is. That that's, that's what we had morphed to by 2006. By the time when you have a full-time assistant, you had time to look at your business and say, can I do this better, smarter? And when you hire a really smart person to be your assistant, you promote them to planner, mm-hmm. to partner, to owner, you know? And uh, so I had time, and, and she certainly was a big help. And, and when I talked to other younger advisors, 
as soon as you can, find somebody to help you so you can focus on the business, not just in the business. And uh, I really... But I feel like that's particularly hard when you're working in an hourly transactional model in the first place because like the the uh the the moment you hire it's like great now i now like i have to get clients for the first three four five months of the year just to cover my payroll obligation like i don't i don't even get anything for me until like june at this point right the the that's exactly what happened to me i wanted to offer anna eighteen thousand to be part-time and she says no i want to be full-time and you got to pay me 30 and i went good for anna (laughs) Are, are you sure you really want to be an advisor later on and learn this business and everything? Yes, I do. Okay. But, uh, I mean, $30,000 in the mid 2000s, that's, I mean, I'll have my inflation calculator handy, but like that's, that's 55,000, maybe 55,000 yeah. in today's dollars. Yeah. And so that was a big thing to swallow, but it, how do I do it better? And, and she, um, I mean, she she was so integral to growing the business by having good ideas and giving me more time, you know, so that that was really another key to success. And when we announced in 2014 that she had bought the company, I would say 90% of the clients had a good relationship with Anna because half the time they right. just talked to Anna. So it was that was the easiest transition I could imagine. I didn't think it would go that easy. I thought we'd have fall off fifteen or twenty percent. I don't think it. I, you know, I, I never tracked it because it was so small. Of people who said, "Well, I don't really. I, yeah. I like you, and I don't like Anna, so I'm leaving." Never heard that. If they left, they left silently, and it was a small percentage. So, so can I ask, like, how did you structure the? The deal and the, and the transaction, the, the succession plan for Anna, I guess both in, in the deal and then thereafter, because you you continued for many years thereafter. I'll, I'll be happy to share that with you. Uh, Anna's husband, Yuri, uh, was a CPA with Deloitte and doing uh, auditing, and he hated it. He wanted to move to San Francisco because he loved it there, and he was going to do importing to uh, Eastern Europe of health health foods and stuff. And I said, well, how much capital do you have? I don't have any capital. Well, <laughs> if you're going to export health stuff, you you need to own it. Otherwise, you're just a manufacturer's rep. I said, what is it you really want? He says, well, I want to be in sales. I think I'd be good in sales. I gave and I ended and I said, well, how about looking at commercial real estate, something I had done for four <laughs> years. And so he went to Marcus and Millichamp. They hired him on the spot. This is a CPA that speaks four languages <laughs> and is a hard worker. <laughs> you are hired. Uh-huh. And and he has done exceptionally well. And, and Anna says, I got to go to San Francisco with him. I can't stay here. And I said, well, please open an office there, you know, see what you can do. Uh, and I gave them both sales training because they hadn't had really formal sales training and I had all my books and notes and ideas and stuff. And uh, Anna went out there and after the first year she did so well, I gave her 5% of the company. Well, when you're part of the company, you get to look at the books. So, so one day she's looking at the books and said, well, when can I buy you out? 
And I said, what? She says, when can I buy you out? I said, well, I don't know. Make me an offer. The next day, her, her now her dad's kind of an entrepreneur. And uh, he was in the trucking business. And uh, next day, she, I'm sure she talked to him. And the next day, she comes back and said, I'll offer you X. And I said, <laughs> what? The next day. The next day. <laughs> so I said, well, you can do better than that. So she upped it about 25%. And I said, we got a deal. Now it was, took us less than 15 minutes. So I said, here's what we do. Let's call the accountant. Let's call our attorney and tell them what the parameters were. So I said, you give me 25% down and 48 payments, uh, monthly payments. And I'll stay around for the four years to make sure the revenue stays there and you've got money to pay me. And that's how we did it. And uh, that was in probably October of 2013, but we announced the takeover and everything uh, went down in uh, January 1st, 2014. And she had joined July the 10th, 2006. So she's less than 30. So she joins me at 23, at 22 or 23, and buys the company at 30. And uh, so ultimately, did you value it like some multiple of revenue, some yes. multiple of yes. profits. Like, how did you think about valuation we, on the business? We did it. Uh, we knew that our profit was about 80% of revenues. This is before payroll taxes and stuff like that. So we just say. So, like e the, the old label of EBOC, e like earnings before any owner compensation. Right came out was 80% of revenues. So, and, like and so pure overhead was 20%. And so we said, okay. Let's take 80% of 80%. So say 20% drop off because I was worried about people dropping off, you know? And so let's take 80% of 80%. And that's how we came up with the number. It wasn't some sort of magic formula. I never asked anybody. I, I, I just said between the two of us, well, uh, let's take, say the revenue is uh, 250,000. Let's take 80% of that. And then we have some drop off. So let's just take 80% of that. And so that's the number we came up with. And so that was the, and so that was the valuation. So yeah. if you're at 250 yeah. of revenue, you end out at $160,000 if I'm doing that math right. Yeah. It was close to that. And, it was close and then, to that. and so that gets paid out over four years. So 25% like, down and the balance okay. over four years. Okay. Cause I didn't want to break her. I want her to be able to pay herself. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then we had to get an assistant <laughs> and help both of us, you know. And then how did it work for, because you stayed around, well, I guess both I'm wondering, like, the four-year interim and then the time thereafter, like, were you, were you also getting a a salary or a, like, portion of payments of revenue that you're like doing client work for uh was was there other dollars coming to you for the work that you were doing in the business or was the idea your 48 monthly payments like that covers your time we had we had me on a salary of twelve thousand dollars a month okay okay and then there was profits at the end of the year and so that's part of the shift when she when she buys the business, like you're on salary now because she owns the business and has to pay salary. That's how it works right. when you buy the business. 
So you so you went to salary. She paid you, I guess, functionally, she paid you a salary for the work you're still doing in the business and then the 48 monthly payments of the purchase price. And, that, and then everything that drops the bottom line after that, she is now earning as a business owner that's taking the risk and doing the deal. And I think in the early years, year one or year two, I, I was tracking my how much money am I bringing in or responsible for, and I wanted to be around the 20000 a month level. A couple of times I came close to saying, boy, we're just, it's been dry for a couple of months. Why don't you just give me 6000 I never had to say that, but I was prepared to say that. But then something happened and we had the money, you know, so it, it worked out okay. But again, uh, I've got work-life balance. I'm now operating out of Italy from two o'clock in the afternoon to eight o'clock at night to accommodate East Coast and West Coast. The clients are happy. Uh, they're getting their answers. I'm able to touch them. Uh, the other things that we're doing are working out and uh, we're doing more YouTube videos and stuff like that. And so uh, it's fun at that point. That's why I stayed around. It was fun. I didn't have to worry about bureaucracy. You know, that's Anna's problem when she buys it. <laughs> yeah, but she was good at that, and she, and she she was handled a lot better. Ultimately, I think we're in nine or ten states at this point. So, so I'm struck just by the, you know, the overall career, like timing of this journey for you, because you said like you were, you had a full career in the air force right then transitions to the years in commercial real estate and then the years at, at new york life before ultimately hanging the 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 proverbial shingle and the hourly model so so can i ask like like how old were you at the point that you launched the business 55 and i thought i would do it for 10 years to take me to 65 and it'd be a good way to earn some money and have a, you know, I could do things because I was taking care of relatives. I was taking, I had to go North. I was everybody's trustee or executor in my family, you know, because you know how to do it, Jim. So, and, and my kids were on the West coast and we're on the East coast and now they're starting to have grandkids and stuff. And so, um, I was happy with the model because I could control my schedule. And then essentially control my income. So I didn't have to make as much money as I made before, but I didn't have to spend as much time at it either. And then in practice, you went almost 20 years. I mean, I guess you sold yes. almost exactly 10 years in, just a little over. Right. But then you stayed around almost 10 years more. Yeah. It's like 2002 to – so 12 years, owner, eight years – having fun helping people. I love helping people. It's hard to retire. Your article mm -hmm. in the Atlantic article that you you put in this past weekend. I hope everybody re reads the summary articles of everything because two out of the articles I had already read cuz I'm <laughs> in retirement now I can read more. Anyway, uh I didn't want to leave this business and I was trying to figure out what do I do in retirement? Well, 
you know, I, I read some articles and books. And so I said, well, what am I really good at? I'm not good at plumbing or electrical or fixing car. You know, I'm just all these skills I don't have, but I'm good at sales. Oh, sales. It's not sales. It's moving, <laughs> moving people from one situation to another, from good or bad to good or whatever you want to call it. But I said, okay, I was also good at getting people to stop procrastinating. So I'll come up with a little side gig called Procrastination Junction, and I'll tell fee-only advisors, send me your procrastinating clients. I'll talk them off the fence, and because I'm not an RIA, I'll send them right back to you. Great model. Great idea, Jim. So I did it. And guess what? Everybody said, well, that's nice. But if they're procrastinating, that probably means we can't get a hold of them either. How are you going to get a hold of them? How are you going to? So I tried this for six months and said, hmm, this isn't working. I need help from an expert. So that's where I went to Kristen Luke, who does niche, uh, not niche marketing. Yeah, help, helps, helps advisors frame up their their marketing when they're when they're trying to focus on a niche. I guess sometimes even help help frame up their niche. Right. Because if you're trying to figure out what how exactly they should focus it. It's reverse engineering. She works with all these RIAs that have problems. <laughs> help me solve their problems. Okay. Right. And she said, Well, uh, you're doing the wrong end. Why don't you help these people that are always complaining to me that uh their younger people don't have the sales skills, the sales cycle's too long. So she's articulating all the problems. And she said, that's where you ought to focus. And I went, oh, okay. I got, I got it. I'll help advisors who might be struggling with their sales skills, but nobody wants to be salesy. So how am I going to do it? Because I'm now- Help them with their moving skills. I'm now 76 years old. How much longer are you going to be around and do this kind of stuff? Maybe five years? Okay. Well, I, I'm i a YouTuber, and I watch a lot of other people's YouTubes, and there's a lady named Sunny Leonard Doozy, Ellie Leonard and Doozy on the end. She's out of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and she's on the internet, and if you watch all her videos, she gives you everything you need, but I've paid her a lot of money to figure out how to help my target market, which are fee-only advisors with less than eight years of experience that might be having some difficulty in their close rate or their communication skills, if you want to talk about it that way. And so that's what I've done. I have, I'm helping the younger generation, I've approached some universities that have CFP programs about sales training for CFP students. Uh, I'm going to do some YouTube videos on that. Uh, I'm a CE sponsor, so I can even give people credit if I give webinars and things like that. So client, communication, those... client communication counts. Yes. And so behavioral finance, H65 through 69 in the CFP topics is where I'm focused as far as CE goes. So, so what's the program at this point? And like, what do you, what do you do or what, how do people engage? 
Well, I interviewed 52 people because that's what Sonny demands that you do. And it's usually 20 to 30 minute interviews. And what are the real problems? Not what you think, but what is the marketplace telling you? Work-life balance, imposter syndrome, too many meetings, too long a sales cycle, and I'll have to think about it and other objections. Those are things that came through to me and the people that uh, I talked to. And so I had to develop a series of lessons, 19, that I offer over a seven-week weekly session and trying to get them to practice these things so they can improve their communication skills and have less meetings and more clients. And I came up with a quirky title uh, based on a book I read called $100 Million Offers by Alex Hermosi. I don't know if you've read that book or not, but no. that is a really good one. And you know, he's saying, how do you develop a business? Now, I don't want a $100 million business. I want work-life balance, like everybody else who's told me that. But I came up to eight weeks to free Fridays. Because if you can have better skills and get more clients with less meetings, then you can take Fridays off. And sometimes you're going to get a four-day weekend because Monday you're closed for a holiday. So that's what I've that's what I've titled this course that runs over seven weeks. But I also offer weekly coaching and a weekly, and this is what I stole from Kristen uh, Luke, was Ask Me Anything Fridays. So Friday at noon, I have Ask Me Anything. Um, Wednesday is coaching. And even when you finish a seven-week program of improving your skills and me helping you practice and me being your accountability person, I'm there for you at least twice a week for as long as I'm around doing this. And and what does it cost to go through the program? Millions. It's worth it. Good ROI. <laughs> but uh, so I, in the 52 interviews, I had more than 30 people give me a number. If I can help you get just five or 10 more clients a year, what is that worth to you? And and I got numbers between 1,000 and 20,000. I eliminated those. And it came out somewhere 3,500 to 4,500 on average, they told me. And it's a one-time fee. It's not an ongoing thing. There's no subscriptions here. Um, so it's $4,000, but I only take five students each session. Why only five students, Jim? You should be doing this to everybody. Well, I'm working on that. But at the moment, it's only five students because I found in small group coaching, everybody feels like they can participate and they can help other people. And there's not so much being a wallflower opportunity and sitting in the background and not being engaged. And that means you're not going to improve. And I want to help people improve. We're tracking their meetings and we're. I'm encouraging them to videotape, whether it's Zoom or um, Google Meet or whatever platform they want to use with their uh, prospect meetings, 
and I'll help them go over that and we can see how they're improving. They can look at themselves and, and figure out if they could do a better job. Um, so I, I've instituted those kinds of things. Does that give you an idea? Yeah. 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 And so, uh, if you too are a, what was it, Jim? A, a fee-only advisor with less than eight years of experience. That's usually with some challenges in your close rates or your communication dynamics with prospects. Or you just want to talk to me for free for fifteen minutes. If you go to my website, the top line there says "book a free meeting." I want to help everybody. I'm working on evergreen programs that include CE to help people, but I think the Helping people practice and being an accountability person is key to success. If you want to be a right. great golfer, and uh, you know who the great golfers are, they go out and practice every day, sometimes twice a day. These skills need practice. You can't just read a book and improve, in my opinion. So as you look back on this journey, Jim, what surprised you the most about the path of building an advisory business? that it took the same three years that it did when I started other businesses. <laughs> that surprised me. I thought I could do it quicker. I thought I knew it all because I'd been successful before, but it, this, this is a different kind of business and you've got to work at dealing with qualified, urgent prospects who are ready to move ahead and not waste your time thinking, oh, they'll come back in a year or so, and I'll let them think about it for a year, and I'll drip on them. I don't think that's a good way to be successful. Yeah, I've, I've always been struck by just this dynamic that it takes three years. I've, I've seen the same thing having started a number of businesses over the years as well, and like it's the same for every single one. Like the darn thing just starts getting traction in year three. And basically no matter what I do to try to make it faster, it it's always not until the third year that it really starts ramping up. <laughs> and then I'd encourage everybody to have an exit strategy. Like those business people I used to meet with right. in New York Life days, What you should be asking me, well, what's your exit strategy on this one? Because I have one. Well, what's your exit strategy on this one, Jim? I'm glad you asked. I am going to find the most motivated, successful student that I deal with who I can track their track record and I am going to give them the company. I'm not going to sell them the company. I'm going to give them the company. They're going to help me revise some things down the road or whatever, but they're going to be part of it and they can share in the profits and then I'm just going to give them the company. So what was the low point for you? In the low point, was being in Italy, working remotely, and my assistant, who was the daughter-in-law of my best friend, quit while I was in Italy. That was the low point. Can you imagine? You got somebody handling your business, and they call up and say, I got to quit. And, I'm assuming with and I, relatively short notice, this was like, I need to leave. You're, you're getting three months notice. No, no. The next day. Ouch. Yes. And I've got like five or six weeks left in Italy. <laughs> what do I, that was the low point. Uh, never, what do you never do hire. at that point? Or yeah, like what's your takeaway from that? <laughs> well, I, I called my, uh, the lady who was helping us be a paraplanner 
and she wasn't full time. She was just helping out on occasion. I called her and say, uh, can, can you deal? I mean, cause she's in Chicago, at least she's on a, a better time zone. So I had her help me a little bit. And then I just came back. I don't know. I truncated the trip a little bit, but not much because we had other things planned. So that, but that was the low point because, you know, but that was pre-Anna. That was pre-Anna. Yeah. So I wasn't two months there. I was only like three or four weeks or something. It was not as long. But I called the paraplanner and said, can you help me? That was a so, little point. what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 20 years ago as you were getting started? Don't advertise. <laughs> advertise gets you nothing. Um, the other thing that I would do differently is I would spend more time earlier on uh, in the project, less in the hourly and more in the project and recurring income. It took me a few years to really focus on the recurring income was critical. Okay. And that came about because I had to have payroll. I had to pay people and stuff. So I had to have some assurance the money was coming in. So I would have started with a model that was, I'll do hourly, but uh, the best for you and for us is uh, to be on a project and recurring basis. I should have done that three or four years earlier. So I know you, you've, you've said you're kind of a, 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 a big reader of all the various books on, on sales training. So what, like what book recommendations would you give to younger, newer advisors that want to get going down this road? Like where, where should they start? Cause there are so many out there. Influence by Chal Robert Cialdini, 2021 edition, number one. Number two, to overcome the I don't want to be salesy would be Daniel Pink's To Sell as Human. That's a 2012 book. Um, and then there's so many others. Um, but those are the first two to get started. Spin selling is another one. The situation, the impact, the uh, plan, and the uh, need payoff. So, Jim, as we come to the the end here, you know, this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you've had the successful path of building and then ultimately selling and exiting the advisory business. And now we're on to the to the next adventure. So like the, the core business has, has gone well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? People look at you as an authority. So I want to be known as an authority in a little narrow area that I did really good in hourly and project fee-only advice that I did really good in sales and moving people from a current situation to a better platform, better phase of their life where they have some more satisfaction that they're on track to, you know, achieve their goals, whatever those goals are. So 
that that's really what I like to be known as. And so I guess ironically to me, you're like, you're doing the, the ultimate meta version of that because you're, you're moving advisors who need help moving clients. Like you're, <laughs> you're help, you're helping sales skills for salespeople that need to sell it down the line. Like there's, you've got many levels to it now. Yeah. But it, it's really about helping people. I just want to help a little narrow segment, a niche, if you will, uh, who feel like they need help and they're motivated to seek me out to get some help. And I'll help them either for free or for pay, depending upon how extensive it is. But I think the accountability and the practice is worth a lot because if you're going to be a good at golf, you need to practice all the time or tennis or whatever else metaphor you want to use. And so that's what I want to do is continue helping people in an area where I have a lot of experience and and how I can put that experience to use. That's what I want to do. Well, amen. I love it. And I, I hope we get to help spread that word and share a little bit of that mission here. So thank you, Jim, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.